Bandwidth for Change Log is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. I'm Ron Evans, and it is go time. It's Go Time, a weekly podcast where we discuss interesting topics around the Go programming language, the community, and everything in between. If you currently write Go or aspire to, this is the show for you. Welcome back, everybody, for another episode of Go Time. Today's episode is number 37. And our sponsors for today's show are Backtrace and the Ultimate Go Training Series. On the show today, uh, we have myself, Eric St. Martin. Carlicia Pinto is also here. Say hello, Carlicia. Hey, everybody. And Brian Kettleston, who, if you were listening to the pre-show, is like crazy hyped up today. So say hello, Brian. I'm not your trained monkey. I'm not going to say hello on demand. <laughs> He's supposed to say hello, Brian. Oh, hello, Brian. You will say it or we will pause the show. Uh, okay. It's like, I'll call your bluff. <laughs> Such a rebel. And let all of our 12 listeners down. You will never do it. I call you on that one. And we still have somebody else to introduce too. Oh, okay. Sorry. So our special guest today is the king of GoBot, uh, Ron Evans, making hardware come alive with Go. Hey, everybody. So we've been in love with your stuff since uh, we saw it, what, back in 2013, 2014, Brian? Yeah. 2014? Yeah. I think so. Well, he spoke at the conference, but I know we ran into it before then. I'm trying to think of when we first started playing. Well, why don't you give like a brief intro to yourself and uh, the GoBot project first, and we'll kind of jump in and talk hardware and Go. Sure. So I'm Ron Evans, aka Dead Program, on all the places that matter, GitHub, Twitter, etc. I'm the ringleader of the hybrid group. We're a software consultancy that specializes in writing software for hardware companies. So if I have more hardware than normal people, it's because I'm supposed to, I guess. <laughs> so I, I tell people, if you need some gear, just you know, show up at my house with a box and something with wheels, like a dolly. Um, anyway, uh, I've been doing open source software for hardware very actively since about 2008. when. Um, I had done hardware-oriented software before that, but it was uh, not open source related. And it was in 2008 that I discovered a project called Ruby Arduino Development from Greg Borenstein. And it wasn't actually running Ruby on Arduinos. It was the somewhat forward-thinking idea of using Ruby to create a domain-specific language, which you could then compile down to Arduino code and run independently. So I created a framework called Flying Robot, which was an unmanned aerial vehicle framework built on top of Ruby Arduino development that was mostly used to control blimps and other flying vehicles. The term drone had not come. It was a kinder, gentler era. You know, back then, you know, drones were strictly the purvey of the military and they were used for reconnaissance. It was, you know, before the dark times in the skies. 
that uh, drone has come to represent to some people, but to others, of course, drone is anything with propellers that flies around. So I created several different frameworks in different languages based on the same sort of ideas. And I, I wasn't really, I mean, I love this idea of Go, you know, conceptually. I think it was uh, Eleanor McHugh, who was the first person who ever actually showed me any Go code with a lightning talk she did at RubyConf in New Orleans uh, many years ago. Then the late, great Jim Wyrick started talking to me about Go. And then, you know, some other people started talking about Go. And I'm like, I should check out this Go thing. And in my case, anytime I check out the language, you know, my first question is, can I make it fly? I mean, under its own power and land successfully, <laughs> you know, not just, not just launch it into the air, although I am known to do that occasionally, but not on purpose necessarily. So, so that's your, your Turing test. Yeah, exactly. We have a, uh, we call it conference rated pilot. It means you can actually fly a drone as part of a conference demo. So you have to fly a little aerial obstacle course first or else, you know, you're not a conference rated. Anyway, uh, I started playing with Go and started playing around with this idea that we ended up calling GoBot. And the first, you know, real public introduction was there at GopherCon, the first GopherCon, you know, the work that I had been doing in Ruby with something called R2, you know, was getting a bit of attention with a few people in, you know, in that community. But it really wasn't until I started seriously learning Golang, which of course, to a large extent happened after the first GopherCon. You know, I didn't let the fact that I didn't know Go stop me like many people in that time. Luckily, other more experienced gophers took pity upon my code, in particular, Matt Amanetti and Jeremy Sands uh, sat down and helped. And so the GoBot of today, which uh, we just released version 1.2 relatively recently, has been significantly rewritten like many GoLang projects have as you know, all of us are. I mean, I still feel like I'm learning Go. I say that every year. Like, I still feel like I'm learning Go. I'm finally kind of getting it. And then the next year, I'm like, oh, I'm starting to kind of learn Go. Hmm. And I was discussing that at lunch with Matt Amanetti. And that's really the beauty of using a language that is so deceptively simple. You know, one of the things that I loved the most was, so the very first GopherCon, Rob Pike did a keynote. Pike. And he talked <laughs> about he talked about how Go wasn't targeted for or wasn't used for embedded stuff. And then later you were showing him doing robotic stuff. The next day. Yeah. Yes. It was awesome. <laughs> well, the, yeah. The, and, the, and the part that trumped that even was when he sat down and started helping you reorganize the code base on our community hack day, the last day of GopherCon. What you need to do is make an interface and put that over here. My palms were sweating. Okay. They were sweating. And he's like, you know, don't be nervous. I don't bite. I mean, he's a very nice man. And I was like, oh, can I get you some coffee, Mr. Pike, sir? You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and he had us dead to rights. He's like, you know, you're like a Python or Ruby programmer. I'm like, yeah, yeah, you got me. And he's like, you do realize this is not, you know, fully idiomatic, you know, Golang. I'm like, yes, now that I'm actually learning Golang, I'm kind of getting that. And he, you know, he was, he was very kind. Um, and th that's one thing about the, Golang community in general is even when people are explaining how you know you could do it better, 
the general ethic, you know, the cultural continuity of us helping each other out and doing so in a fun way. You know, the, the kindness is really the term that, you know, and it's still a relatively small community as communities go, but it has been one of the things that's made it especially pleasurable is so many different people contributing. And sometimes what they're telling you is means you have to do a bunch of work. But isn't that the idea, right? So, you know, we've been fortunate that the community has really embraced GoBot and helped us evolve to the, just earlier today, we hit 2,800 stars on GitHub. We have over 60 contributors. We have a lot of active work being done, adding new hardware and software platforms, compatibility with different hardware that's coming out or that's been out and, you know, people are just getting around to using. So it's been especially satisfying to see that people are, you know, when you're a musician and you play a song, you want people to enjoy it. You're not just this idea that you're just doing it for yourself, I think is not really true. It, you're doing it because you want people to like what you're doing. And, and especially in the case of open source, the way they show they like what you're doing is they help you make it better in some way. And it could be just by trying to use it and running into problems and saying, you know, hey, I need some help. That's really valuable contribution, especially since people are often intimidated to admit they don't know something. So here's a question. As you mentioned, you've got R2, which is uh, in Ruby, and then you've got, I think it was Cylon.js is the, the JavaScript version. How does it contrast with those um, kind of community involvement and even kind of the scope or usage of the project? So they all use the same core set of underlying design patterns. It's very much like Sinatra in Ruby was the progenitor of Express.js in Node and Flask in Python and Noir in Clojure. And, you know, every language implemented the same set of patterns for doing RESTful style API definitions. So, you know, really the contribution I think that's interesting, or one of them anyway, is that we've identified a simple set of core design patterns that you can use for building applications that have some type of physical real world component or interaction. So we started it with Ruby with R2, then not too long thereafter, we, you know, we got impatient. We couldn't wait for people to copy it. We just decided we'd copy ourselves. So we created Cylon.js and then shortly thereafter, GoBot. So the core design patterns may be the same, but the actual implementations are very much intended to be idiomatic in each of the languages that the code is implemented in. So that means that there are definitely some differences into the way things work internally, where R2 uses the actor model being built on top of something called celluloid. Cylon.js is running on top of Node.js, so it's using nodes the way that it handles blocking I.O. And then GoBot is using channels to communicate the information between different Go routines that are running to handle different interactions with hardware devices. So the implementations are very much idiomatic with regard to the implementation patterns, but the net effect is that you're using the same application development patterns. 
you know, we might think of it as a sort of software factory for building hardware-oriented applications. You know, it's like album-oriented radio, hardware-oriented applications. But the communities are a lot different. The Ruby community sort of stalled, I think, a little because a lot of Rubyists are these days are more interested in building web applications than anything else. And also the implementations of the runtime, the things that we needed to do as far as concurrency was concerned, really we could do them best with JRuby or with Rubinius and not with the mainline Ruby itself. With Node, we can take advantage of the way that Node handles blocking I.O., but we're also limited by the way that Node handles blocking I.O. So it's, you know, Node is a hack. It's a useful hack because most of the time, the applications you're writing, your problem in life is blocking I.O. You know, if you're writing web servers, your problem in life is blocking I.O. The same way as if you're writing applications that communicate with hardware sensors, your problem is blocking I.O. again. It's a different I.O., but it's the same problem, which is where, you know, the way that Go handles these things is so elegant and so concurrent. I did a talk a couple of weeks ago at FOSDEM in Brussels, which is an amazing conference, by the way. It's completely community organized. So it's sort of a controlled chaos of a delightful kind. And there was a fantastic community room for Go. Frances Campoy was there, did a really great talk about the state of Go 1.8. You know, a few other talks. I, I gave a talk. Really excited about the prospects for Go's total domination of the Internet of Things and robotic development world. So here's why. The first one is Go's performance. Golang's team with 1.8, the fact that the garbage collection's worst stop the world time is now 100 microseconds with a more typical average, you know, being around 10 microseconds, microseconds, not milliseconds, microseconds. This is the kind of real-time programming capability that we need for hardware-oriented applications that are flying drones around and doing aerial acrobatics and whatever else, right? So the second is concurrency. You know, the Go programmer embraces the concurrency model of Go and is able to benefit from it enormously. The fact that Go can take advantage of all of the cores on the multi-core machine and many of the new system-on-chip, single-board, connected device platforms are multi-core processors, you know, particularly the ones from Intel, but also ones from ARM. And given how difficult it is to write multi-threaded code in C++, I mean, I've written C++ code for years, but I'm, I'm a mutant, okay? As a part of my, my weekly activities, I regularly program in C++, Python, JavaScript, and Go in the same week. You know, that's kind of weird. But the abilities you have to create concurrent code in Go with relatively little effort, when you need to coordinate the interaction between multiple hardware devices in near real time, and then the real kicker, of course, is the portability, being able to cross-compile your Go on your note computer, targeting your Intel Jewel, and you just cross-compile it, SCP it onto the target device and run it. You know, when you look at the amount of effort it takes to do that in other languages, even C++ with all the different, you know, dynamically linked libs, the fact that things are statically linked in Golang 
you know, this is really the triumvirate of core capabilities you need to do device-oriented programming. So if the Go team themselves didn't realize how great it was for this, well, we, their audience, do. It's delightful to hear that Go is working so well for hardware because hardware is hard. <laughs> it's really, there's so many things. I mean, I have such bad luck with hardware anyway. Whenever I touch it, the thing, whatever it is, breaks. As delightful as it is, I wanted to ask, what do you see as opportunities for improvement for Go as far as hardware and IoT? Well, um, funny you should mention that. There's really a few things that can make the big difference that currently are either completely lacking or are in the very early stage and need a lot more community involvement. I mean, the, the answer to everything is more community involvement naturally. So the first one is Bluetooth 4.0, no, aka Bluetooth Low Energy. So this wireless standard is the core of device interactions with a whole category of different devices. And it's really the fundament of the next generation of wireless IoT. The Best work that's been done in this space has been by Roy Lee with the Current Labs BLE package. It is amazing how much work Roy has done pretty much almost entirely on his own. I mean, a few of us have helped out a bit, a little bit, little, little, little bit, you know. So he's shouldering the technical debt for building out the entire BLE stack for Golang, essentially, you know, really remarkable work that he's done and needs a lot more support and help from the community. Another one is running Golang on real-time operating systems like Zephyr or Embed or Free RTOS. So there's no reason why we shouldn't be able to compile Golang and target it against an RTOS the same way that we're targeting Windows or OS X or MIPS or Plan 9. It's really a matter of somebody dedicating the time to, you know, and there is a lot of documentation on how to build out this tool chain. It's just, you know, we need the community to kind of rally behind that because then that will allow Go to run on things like the um, Intel Curie, which is basically a dual processor. It's got the microcontroller and it's also got an ARC processors so you can run real-time operating systems like Zephyr on it. Embed, where you can run on a whole bunch of different ARM-based microcontrollers. So it's a way of running Go on much less expensive, much more commoditized type hardware. You know, that would be a huge step forward. And having some support for OpenCV, which is a computer vision package, you know, computer vision and machine learning, the other two pillars of the instrumented real world, right? We need the things that are the sensors giving us the data. And then we need these other software-based capabilities to analyze that data and figure out what it means so that, you know, perhaps we want to do something with, about it. You know, our role, the way that we see it as members of the GoBot team is, you know, we're sort of the stewards of the de facto low-level hardware interfaces for Go at this point. There has been a couple of movements, but you know whether or not this should be actually part of Go itself is very arguable, just because keeping Go very light and minimal 
and then adding these type of capabilities, you know, so I don't have a strong opinion about whether or not it should be. What I do have an opinion about is more, you know, if we as a community can sort of rally around creating shared set of low-level hardware interfaces to make it easier for implementers, we can then not just have GoBot, but, you know, potentially other projects that could utilize those same, you know, interfaces and, you know, share ideas. You know, a single solution or monoculture does not, you know, it's not really sustainable. And so it's, you know, because of our popularity, we view that our role is sort of to be stewards of other interesting things that other people are doing, which may be, in fact, designed to replace what we're doing at some point. Or they may be integrated into what we're doing since, you know, it's all about the interfaces and helping the community create those. So it always just comes back down to let's share ideas and see what happens. But there's a lot of exciting stuff going on as far as hardware-related activity. First of all, I made a list of some just even this week. So I'm in Los Angeles this week for the SCALE 15X conference. SCALE is uh, the Southern California Linux Expo. It is North America's largest community-run Linux Expo, and it's in its 15th year. Wow. Really fantastic conference. They had to move from their original home at the LAX Hilton because of the fire marshal. <laughs> so they're now at the Pasadena Convention Center. It's taking place this weekend. If you're in the LA area, I really recommend. There's a lots of amazing talks. There's uh, Canonical is running UbuCon, which is Ubuntu-focused on the first two days of the conference. On Saturday, there's Scale the Next Generation, which is a day conference track by and for kids. So it's kids giving the talks and attending them and a bunch of workshops and other activities and fun giveaway stuff. So we're going to be there um, demoing GoBot, of course, with a interactive laser tag robotic game that we built called Toy Hub, which is in its uh, third iteration now. So it's going to be a lot of fun things going on at uh, scale. But this week has been really exciting in the hardware world. The Raspberry Pi Zero W, which is the new uh, Raspberry Pi Zero with built-in Bluetooth and uh, Wi-Fi. You know what the tech. W stands for, Ron? Wireless. Want. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I ordered mine um, by violating air flight rules and actually doing it on my mobile phone while waiting for takeoff on an international flight and just managed to get my payment info in right before the flight attendants forcibly took the phone. Nice. Yeah, that's how dedicated I am, my friends. How dedicated I am. <laughs> but yeah, it's really exciting. For $10 US, it's... Uh, a Raspberry Pi with all the trimmings and the built-in wireless. So it's, uh, I'm very excited. I've been a big fan of Raspberry Pi since I had, I was fortunate enough to actually have the first Raspberry Pi in America. Um, I did a demo using the Raspberry Pi the day before it was formally introduced at Maker Faire in New York at the Golden Gate Ruby conference uh, when we first showed kids Ruby running on the Raspberry Pi. So um, I've been a big fan for a long time, and uh, you know they're really hardworking. They've had a tremendous community build up around it. There's all kinds of interesting software that runs on the Raspberry Pi. GoBot runs really well, especially with Go 1.8's improvements substantially as far as Go's performance on ARM, somewhat less so on x86 just because performance was already quite good. 
Well, speaking of uh, the Raspberry Pi, there's some metrics. You were mentioning adoption metrics earlier. I have some metrics that I recorded that I want to share with you. Uh, since putting GoBot on my Raspberry Pi, I have used GoBot to control the cook of 68 racks of ribs, 17 briskets, five prime ribs, and 10 whole chickens. <laughs> All right, I'm hungry. He's actually keeping, <laughs> keeping count. And that's, that's adoption. Those are metrics that matter, Ron. <laughs> you know, this is the true quantified self. So I know that we can probably go, get pretty deep into, especially the barbecue stuff. It's something Brian and I love. But before we do that, let's take a quick sponsor break. Our first sponsor for today is Backtrace. Software teams use Backtrace to take the headache and guesswork out of debugging across their environments. Backtrace jumps into action when your Go application fails by capturing detailed application state information, including the complete set of Go routines, channels and their wait durations, and my favorite, scheduler information. Backtrace analyzes this state and archives it in a centralized object store, allowing you to explore interesting patterns across your errors and plug rich error data into your resolution workflows. Backtrace is used by companies like Fastly, which is ChangeLog's bandwidth partner, Limelight Networks, Message Systems, AppNexus, and more. Head to backtrace.io slash gotime to learn more and start your free trial. All right, and we're back talking with Ron Evans about GoBot and important statistics about Brian's grilling with Go. So during the break, you're just kind of talking about the puns with Go. I really want to see an Energizer bunny powered by GoBot so we can really say it keeps going and going. Uh, it's so funny. I don't want to take away any surprises, but there <laughs> might be some interesting new toys that we will be bringing to Hardware Hack Day at GopherCon. Oh, man. What a tease. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> I really want to retire from organizing just so I can attend. <laughs> I know. Okay, give us a hint. So uh, I was uh, finally got to meet Renee French in real life at the last GopherCon. And obviously, I'm a big admirer of the Gopher. And the talk about you know the standards for appropriate Gopherism, which you know, I know is a topic that has concerned all of us at one time or another. So I've never actually gotten any official yay or nay over any of these things. Um, although I had sent GoBot t-shirts to both her and Rob Pike, but the least we could do. So we never had the chance to ever meet her and, or talk to her about it. And so I was delighted to find that she liked what we had done. And then I told her about the thing that we're going to be bringing to Hardware Hack Day. So that's all I'll give you. <laughs> Wow. Okay. This sounds huge. very good. <laughs> it's it's relatively small and yet big at the same time. Gobot controlled gophers. I'm calling it now. That'd be so awesome. I can neither confirm or deny any rumors. Man, you know, I don't... The, the tickets. <laughs> oh my god, my email's blowing up. Ticket sales are going through the roof for GopherCon. You better get your tickets now. Oh yeah. Speaking of which, uh speakers were announced. So if, if you are listening live, or I guess even by the time you hear this show, if you have not looked, definitely go look at uh, the speakers. We're kind of jumping ahead. But uh, yeah. <laughs> you are totally jumping ahead, but that's cool. <laughs> so yeah, I, 
one cool thing though to talk about when, when we talk about GoBot and stuff, and even bringing up um, Brian's barbecue thing is a lot of people feel like hardware is unapproachable, and Arduino kind of like was a big kick back into the maker scene, and people are able to do a lot of things with hardware more easily than they think they're able to. But using stuff like GoBot makes it even more approachable. And Brian can give a, a good example of that with the barbecue thing he built. Uh, I mean, how long do you think it took you to, to wire together that, Brian? I, I don't know. I'm having a hard time struggling with the idea that that segue sounded a lot like Brian's an idiot, and even he can use GoBot on his <laughs> Raspberry Pi. But, but the truth of it is, is that I was going to interject and say I'm an idiot, and even I can use GoBot on a Raspberry Pi. So I'm not going to take it personally because it's true. It was, um, it was an afternoon uh, plugging things in and maybe two or three hours of coding to get all of the right hardware addresses, doing the right things at the right times. And then, you know, maybe another two or three weeks of on and off debugging, trying to get my calculus algorithm correct and working well. So, you know, and not much coding time at all, just a lot of perfecting. Which, by the way, I, I, very elegant PID based implementation. Kudos Thank to you, you, sir. Thank you so much. I, I sat my kids down at the dinner table while we were doing it, and I said, don't let anybody tell you you'll never use math after college. Oh, yeah. <laughs> because there are important things in life, like barbecues, that might require calculus, so pay attention. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and the, just to, to riff on the same idea, the idea that something is, that difficulty of a thing is equal to the goodness of a thing to the benefit to the value of a thing is only because of scarcity right like if relatively few people know how to do a thing then it's more valuable but we live in the open source era right information we can have our cake eat it and give some to all our friends <laughs> it's not a zero-sum game anymore so there's no upside ultimately to restricting this information you know, when it was a professional programming priesthood, as we used to call it back at Apple, the people we were against, the people who would wear white coats and would be typically hairy-armed engineers, as a female colleague of mine called them, you know, the people who were going to restrict your access to this knowledge and information so that they could use it and, you know, be the ones to be the keepers of the knowledge. But now we live in the whole number era. It's more about the democratization of knowledge. It's about the accessibility of knowledge. And it's about unlocking the things we can do with this knowledge. It's not just having it for its own sake. It's like having a book about something that you haven't read, but you keep on the shelf. You know, it's not the same thing as actually possessing and assimilating that knowledge and doing something with it. You know, it's a, it's a poor shadow. So yeah, couldn't agree more with that. So Crossing this barrier between, you know, a lot of people look at hardware and think, oh, God, I could never do that. Well, the funny part is if you talk to electrical engineers, they say, oh, software, yeah, it's really hard. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> and, and I've seen this a bunch of times with the Lego First Robotics teams, which is a fantastic high school robotics program that's been going on for a number of years and a bunch of people from NASA, a lot of people involved in it. So I noticed the teams would kind of bifurcate. You'd have the hardware people and the software people. And the hardware people would be, you know, assembling the robots. And the software people would be like, hey, can you hurry up so I can write some code? 
you know, and a lot of the work that we want to try to do is to make it so that it's easier for people to get started and to realize hardware development is very much like software development. Nobody starts from scratch. You copy and paste your way in. So it's a different set of tooling. You know, if, if you are designing a circuit from scratch, it is the equivalent in hardware of writing your own crypto algorithm in software. You probably shouldn't be doing it. And if you should, you already know. So our approach is really quite the opposite to make it as easy as possible. And there's even the simplest things that you take for granted are things that the novice does not know. And so you can't make assumptions because even those assumptions are barriers for people to, to do things with them. And if we want to make, you know, the internet of things as a term is not one of them, especially fond of, but like the term hacker, you know, it's been adopted by popular culture, like the term drone for that matter. So I have to go along with it, but it's a very, very, very powerful set of technologies to instrument the real world. So who's going to be the beneficiaries of that instrumentation? Well, if it's a traditional closed source siloed sort of world, it's not going to be the people who are being instrumented. So if we want, you know, very much like Douglas Rushcroft's programmer be programmed, well, the stakes just went up by several orders of magnitude because now you literally can't hide because the whole world is being instrumented. Hmm. So what are we going to do about this? Well, we're software developers. We're going to program our way out of it. And how are we going to do that? Well, open source, that is our set of philosophies, which are then, of course, represented by an enormous set of code that, depending on the licensing and, and such, you could draw upon for different purposes. You know, we've tried to make it possible with GoBot for developers to actually use GoBot to build commercial things and sell them because open source is not about a bunch of companies just not having to pay for things. And that doesn't work. You know, that's how people, you know, maintainers get burned out, feel taken advantage of, become resentful, retire from the work that they've done, and we're all at a collective loss. We're very lucky at Hybrid Group because we get to do a lot of open source development that we're paid to do. Contributing to open source, too, is difficult, too, because even just as consumers, people's natural instinct is to file an issue rather than a pull request. And oftentimes the reason for that is they say that, um, you know, they, they feel like they're not qualified enough. They don't know enough about the project or maybe the language to contribute. And they're worried about contributing something that's not worthy of being pulled in. And I think that the, it misses the point sometimes too, where um, there's, there's kind of two factors that a solution to the problem is often better than no solution to the problem. And somebody might be able to help whip it up to shape. And people are grateful. When, when you have an open source project and somebody's helping, you'll often help coach the person to make it right. And they can learn and then they become a valuable member of that community through kind of learning from other people's advice who have experience on the project. But a lot of people, I think, don't feel confident enough to just send a pull request. I, I think that's really valid. And, you know, the, the I'm not worthy or I'm not good enough, not realizing that every single observation 
is worthy of being noted, especially the initial experiences of things that we are all already so schooled in that we don't think about them. It could be something as simple as when you have wires, the red one is usually the plus or the hot electricity, and the black one is the minus, meaning it's the ground. You know, we've seen all this when we know how to read schematics and wiring diagrams, but if you're just getting started and you don't know that, oh, wait, you mean the colors mean something? Like, you know, it's still just the same wire, but we use the colors to represent a significance so that we can actually understand what's going on. But these are customs, right? They're, they're not strict rules per se. You know, one piece of wire being the same as another, except as to the color of the shield housing on it. So well, it's similar you know, to the software world. It's an idiom, right? I was going to say that. Yeah, exactly. The idiom of hardware. Exactly. And so very intelligent people are suddenly either in the fetal position in the corner because they suddenly feel like, oh, I'm not smart now. I was smart earlier today, and now I'm not smart anymore because I couldn't make this wiring work. But the alternative to that is if we can be more compassionate towards that experience by addressing it and encouraging people, the emperor's new clothes effect, if you will, you know, pointing out that like, Oh, I believe there may be something wrong with the, you know, getting started guide. And like, oh, wow, the getting started guide. Where is that? We have one of those, you know. So you find burrs and rough edges and things and you smooth those over. And instead of being a sad person who feels now that they're not quite as smart as they were earlier, instead, they do something that may seem insignificant, like blinking an LED. But it's not about the LED blinking. It's about what it represents. It's about that you've taken this first step into a larger world, and now the next step is a little bit easier because you've already taken that first one. If, if, if anything we want to do with GoBot, it's to try to encourage more people to have that fearless explorer's mind, because we really don't know what the next great ideas are. That's what they're supposed to come up with. So I retweeted somebody a couple of days ago, too, and I, I it really kind of resonated with me. It basically said something about like if you're writing documentation or tutorial or something to banish the words easy and simple from that, because it's not easy or simple if you've never done anything like that before. And I think that's true. And another one I'll add is the word just. You just have to. And it makes people, it puts people in a position where they don't feel like they're capable or that when they're struggling, that it's just not for them because it should be easy. Those words are immediate trigger for imposter syndrome. I am going to review our documents because I am very guilty of this. I thought that I was uh, graciously inviting people by trying to make the way seem easier. But if I'm having the opposite effect, then it's my responsibility as a maintainer to try to do something about it. And of course, that just means editing some text. Yeah, it's, I guess it's difficult because when, when you use verbiage like that, you can say something's easy to make people feel confident that like they can jump in, right? Like, but the other side of it is the negative factor if you struggle with it, right? If I read something and it says like, oh, this is easy, and then it's not easy for me to do, I feel like somehow I'm missing a ton of foundational knowledge because it gets really hard like if you've done similar things it's easy if if all of it is new to you right like if you've 
if somebody tells you to set up a web server and you've never looked at a Linux machine ever, it's not like there's any individual part of that that's overly difficult, but it's a lot of foundational stuff to learn that you don't know. And as you run into stuff. Oh, yeah. Do you remember the In a Nutshell series of books? I had a bunch of them. And the, the one that was like five or six inches thick was, you know, Linux in a nutshell. <laughs> You just, you know, five, 600 pages of stuff you got to know. It's just the minimum, you know, bare minimum, you know. <laughs> so, I mean, if, it, if, if you don't find that intimidating, you're probably a fraud. I mean, you know, I find that intimidating. Like, oh, wow, I'm supposed to know all this stuff just for the most minimal necessary knowledge. I, I've seen recently the confessional tweets that people, I didn't do it not because I was against it or anything, just because I didn't actually get around. But I thought it was really interesting that people felt the need to confess, you know, and some of them were humble brags and some of them were more legitimate acknowledgements of we're all internet-based programmers. What does that mean? It means if we don't have an internet connection to look something up, I mean, I, for one, don't know much except how to type in the right search because there's too much knowledge and certainty is not an indication of mastery. Certainty is an indication of an intermediate level. Oh, it's definitely this. Mastery is a, hmm, it could be A, it could be B, sometimes it could be C, or it could be something else entirely. Mastery in, indicates a certain uncertainty and a willingness to approach solving the problem wherever it happens to lead. But you have to have confidence for that, and you never get that confidence if you keep running into obstacles. And you never get to solve any of them successfully. You just feel like, oh, yeah, maybe this is not for me. You know, and I've seen an unfortunate tendency in, for that to happen. I mean, programming is a very intellectually demanding occupation. And if you've never had a sense of burnout or any type of need for dealing with your mental health as a part of being a programmer, don't worry, you will. <laughs> you know, it, it's coming. And so it's, it's about, I mean, if you're a professional athlete and you are asked to be in a game, you have trainers and nutritionists and they doctors and they're making sure that you are fit. And if you get an injury, they check you out. So we as programmers are expected to perform at a cognitive level, essentially at the Olympic cognitive level every day. And typically, Here's a coffee and a donut. Go. It's interesting because the tech world for me, I don't think I've ever felt so much gratification and so much exhaustion all at the same time. You know, you can be so excited about the stuff that you're learning and the stuff you're doing. And you, like you said, you can also experience those, those lows where you don't even know why you're just mentally exhausted. <laughs> not only does the, the software not compile, but somehow you're supposed to do 16 weeks of, of coding before Friday. <laughs> you know, the, the whole trick to a happy life is your code works on Friday afternoon and you stop coding for the weekend. You know, that's like, if you could achieve that, you know, you're, but of course, oh no, I have to mess with some other code on the weekend, right? Just because I need the constant emotional, you know, peaks and valleys of this because I'm addicted to coding. My, my kids have told me, dad, you're addicted to coding. I say, I can stop anytime I want. I'm going to stop in just five more minutes as soon as I finish this thing, right? <laughs> just 10 more lines of code. I swear, I can stop anytime I want. Just, gonna, just one more hit. I mean, line of code, you know. So, uh, 
it's a puzzle. It, it truly is, right? It, I'm going to figure this out. <laughs> you know, so it's it's definitely something that we have to learn more about as far as the human part of coding is the only part that matters. You know, I'm a humanist. I work with technology as a means to an end towards a happier human being. You know, the, the point is not the technology. It's what it does for us. We, we really can't forget that. Absolutely. And I wanted to ask you, Ron, um, what are the more popular uses for uh, GoBots, as far as you can tell? Well, really, it, it kind of, um, you know, on the one hand, you have the makers, the people who are hackers who want to put together some, so, some individual bespoke solution to a particular problem they have. You could maybe go buy a cheaper prefabricated version of your garage door opening system, but then you would lack the satisfaction of having done something, you know? So, so that's, that's more of the maker side and it's not about reproducing the thing is about just making one for yourself. But then the other side that's really interesting is if you're going to build a connected device product, you know, you don't have a lot of options as far as I think we kind of talked about earlier, you know, you only have a certain number of options as far as languages and technologies. You know, you've got the rugged traditional approach of C or C++. The newer languages that people are looking at really are Elixir, Rust, and Go. So each of them have, you know, perhaps certain strengths and weaknesses, but, you know, I don't think any of them has had the success that Go has had, you know, in part because of the simplicity that it provides. And so if you're the way that we can tell when a project transitions over from maker weekend to professional is when support requests are coming in during the week and they include things like, you know, I got to get this done for my boss by the weekend. You know, those are kind of dead giveaways that, oh, hmm, you know, this is not just a you know maker project. We don't always have visibility of those things. And then the number of the ones that we've worked on, we can't talk about, of course, because, you know, hybrid group is able to afford to do these things because, of course, like all good frameworks, we've extracted it out of the work that we've done, you know, actually creating hardware products for companies, you know, some of which have shipped and some of which have not, you know, so really that's the part where the exciting part of the future is. You know, it's not about the cool gadgety type stuff. It's about the slightly more mundane instrumentation of the real world to improve incrementally human problems a little tiny bit, you know, to make processes a little tiny bit more efficient so that things can be less wasteful or cost less so that the benefit can then result in utilizing less resources in order to provide a higher quality of life. We manifest that today by way of commercial products. And so that is the place where we're really excited about Go and GoBot is bringing it to the industrial strength. You know, we would say that GoBot is for professional hardware-oriented developers who want to build a real product. You know, that's really what for us is the ultimate. If we can help create a thousand companies that are all able to make money by building hardware-oriented products that are doing great things for their customers and their users, you know, if municipalities and governments can use them to build more open and more efficient instrumentation to improve their civic life, you know, if we can do these things through open source, then 
it's kind of like, I think it was uh, Winston Churchill quipped that we have capitalism, the most efficient form of economy so that we can have democracy, the least efficient form of government or something like that. <laughs> I may have attributed the quote wrong. I may have even made the whole thing up, but, but I, I view open source the same reason. You know, it's not so that nobody has to pay anything and gets it all cheap. It's a, so for what purpose? So we could just, you know, make extra money. Yes, perhaps, but also, you know, for a more intrinsic improving, you know, solving big problems and improving the human condition. You know, that is to me, the end game of open source is it's the roads and bridges. It's the infrastructure of the 21st century is the open source that the world runs on. And ultimately that perhaps becomes the most valuable thing in human society. I don't know. Now, I have some questions kind of about the future of GoBot, but first let's take our second sponsor break. So our second sponsor for today is the Ultimate Go Training Series. Our friends at Arden Labs offer some of the best training classes for Go, web, and data science folks. They've trained over a thousand students from all over the world over the past two years. They offer corporate training in Go, web, and data science taught by Bill Kennedy, Daniel Whitenack, and John Gossett. Bill wrote the Go in Action book, and all three have given talks at conferences and events all over the world. They offer two and three full-day intensive courses that literally take any developer to a whole new level. The classes teach specification, implementation, mechanics, guidelines, and best practices with a lot of personal experience. They also provide a high-energy environment to keep those involved excited and focused throughout the class. Even your most experienced developers will get something out of every class. To learn more, head to ardenlabs.com slash gotime and tell them Eric from GoTime sent you. All right, and we are back talking to Ron Evans from GoBot. So, Brian, uh, you were mentioning that you have uh, an anecdote as well. Yeah, you know, Ron, you mentioned uh, the, that there were kind of two types of projects, that the bigger uh, foundational projects and then the fun. I threw something together for the weekend kind of things. And this this one that I saw last time I was out in San Francisco, um, it, it really hit kind of peak hacker for me. It was a uh, a small programming company that had a um, an office without a doorbell. So they went out and they bought the pusher button for the doorbell and a Raspberry Pi, and they hooked the Raspberry Pi up to Slack so that when you push the doorbell, the Raspberry Pi announced in their Slack channel that somebody was at the door because everybody in the entire office wore headphones and nobody would be able to hear a damn doorbell anyway. <laughs> so I think that was, for me, that was the peak of uh, complete hackerness was uh, using that to engineer a social problem with a Raspberry Pi and GoBot. In a reasonably non-interruptive way that actually corresponded to the you know, needs of their office. Right. That's beautiful. So now let's talk about the future of GoBot. Um, like what's kind of coming down uh, the pipe for you? I mean, aside from the thing that you can't tell us about for GopherCon and uh, what's the future look like? Uh, is, there, is there anything you're excited about? Is there anything you, you particularly want to work on to expand GoBot into new areas? So um, GoBot continues to evolve. We pushed really, really hard for the 1.0 release um, right before the holidays, at the end of last year. One reason was we really wanted to give people a more solid experience for those who choose to use that time of year, who have vacation time, you know, to work on individual projects or self-knowledge or development. 
so I know some people have been critical about that sort of thing. Um, I personally think, you know, you got to do what you got to do. And if that is the time when you're able to do that personal professional development in order to sustain your own career, by all means, that is an excellent thing to do with one's time. So stabilizing the external interfaces was was really, really important for us. And now that we've done that, the contributors have been doing amazing work, both kind of the some of the core work for interfaces such as the I2C interfaces. We're able to do some really sophisticated things with multiple different kinds of instruments like digital compasses and barometers and accelerometers and things. So that's all due to contributors. A lot of the work that we're going to be doing is going to be improving the implementations of some of the core stuff we've already done, but without changing the external interfaces. Bill Kennedy, Ultimate Go Bill Kennedy, by the way, uh, has been extremely helpful mentoring, actually, some of the internal refactorings that we've been doing. You know, he spent a lot of time thinking about package-oriented design, and he's been really, really helpful guiding us through this process of reassembling the plane while in flight so that we're better situated for this current year of development. We've been putting out a release each month consistently for the last couple of months. Um, collecting together the new hardware changes as far as this internal refactoring. So, you know, next is coming the GPIO interfaces, and then we'll be adding SPI interfaces and UART interfaces and a couple of other standard type of device-to-device integration interfaces. That way we can add on top of that all of the different capabilities of as I mentioned, digital compasses, accelerometers, barometers, temperature sensors, all the different instrumentation. I mean, ultimately, GoBot's role is to make it possible to do a very modular style of development for you know the hardware side of these applications. So adding more support for new types of hardware that are coming out, that's you know very much on our roadmap. But also building up the tooling that you need to go all the way to full production. So um, we've been working with a number of people from Canonical for a while on, I think it used to be called Ubuntu Snappy Core, but now it's called Snapcraft. So Snapcraft is Canonical's approach towards application packaging and sandboxing. So for there's also some other really interesting projects, Resin IO for deployment. There's you know a few other ones. The idea being that if we build up the right tooling, we make it a lot easier for professional developers to build some type of commercial product and then not just deploy it, but also keep it maintained. It's, there's no such thing as a one-off internet-connected device. If there's anything that we should have learned from the Mirai botnet or that we should have <clears throat> learned from you know, some of the recent debacles like Cloud Pets mm. or Hello Barbie, yeah. We need to take these systems seriously, even if they look like toys. In fact, the toys, you know, like small soldiers, you know, 80s movie, you know, watch out for the toys. You know, they'll come and get you if they get pwned, the same as anything else will. You know, denial of a service attack mounted from, you know, your toy doll collection is not something you expect. But it's coming if we don't apply professional development practices to literally every single connected device. And so GoBot's future is if we do it right, that 
we build the tooling for the whole next generation of connected devices and build it on top of Go, you know, that seems to be the strongest contender at this point from all the stuff that we've seen, you know, except for something completely novel or that, you know, hasn't popped up into our serious radar yet. But as far as the best bet going, that, that seems to be it. Yeah, I mean, there's an entire website dedicated to just finding random IoT things on the internet that you can just browse around and find people's webcams that have default credentials, and it's they're scary times. Yeah, we have to take responsibility for that on multiple levels. One is we as developers have to use you know serious professional practices and help determine what those are within ourselves or else they're going to be applied upon us from outside by people who don't understand, you know, and that will substantially reduce the pace of innovation and could even end up regulating things like open source if we're not careful. So, you know, that's one aspect that we need to take seriously. The other, of course, is someone needs to pay for this stuff. As a consumer, it's unreasonable to expect that you can buy a hardware product that comes with infinite lifetime online technical support and updates unless that's priced into the product to begin with. So, you know, it's kind of a twofold. Companies need to be responsible about actually building products with that, but consumers need to actually be willing to pay for it or else perhaps the products need to be a little more expensive or simply not connected. I haven't come up with a good term for it, but you know, we, we need objects of independent utility too, right? We need to, to give the consumer control over these things, and that typically has not been what we've seen on the web. I mean, have you gone to any web pages lately? <laughs> you know, <laughs> the number of web trackers is like there's trackers on trackers on trackers, you know. So you just take that same thing, but you know, now it's your door and your doorknob and we're living in a philip k dick novel where your doorknob is demanding that you pay the bill for the monthly service or it won't open the door <laughs> yeah it's getting crazy with that and uh i mean even just because we carry these things around on us and they emit data right i mean plenty of stores are doing it now because your phone is constantly sending out beacon frames and things like that looking for wireless devices and it's advertising its mac address and things like that they can actually pair you. When you go to the counter, they know by your credit card who you are. And they know because your phone is nearby emitting data that you're that person. And now they can track you through the store. It's insane. And if there's a benefit to you in the sense that they know you're trying to find the diapers and they're going to lead you directly to them because you're in a hurry because it's late at night and the odds are you need to get home real quick, right? That there's a benefit to that scenario versus the we know you need diapers real bad, so we just added two dollars and fifty cents to the price because well, you know, they're waiting for you at home, man. Hmm. So we have to be very careful because the kind of perverse incentives that we've seen around the behavioral economics and the kind of opportunistic pricing models, we have to be very, very careful that we don't ultimately create this sort of surveillance society where all of the benefit flows directly to the shareholder class and none of it is going to the consumer class. That's that's not a just application of this type of technology in even in just simple economic terms, because the consumers are the ones producing the data. They should be able to benefit by it in some way. 
maybe we need licensing models where you're able to, you know, turn on or off the ability of sharing of data so that, you know, you can decide to whom and to whom not it is shared on a slightly more discrete level. I know that Brave, the browser, has tried this type of micropayments approach. You know, we may need that in terms of internet connected devices as well, or else we're going to have these sort of perverse incentives that create, you know, a warped economics around these devices and then perhaps not apply them to the right things. If we're putting all our emphasis into selling you more stuff and not enough into reducing utilization of scarce environmental resources, for example, you know, just because one has a big benefit and the other one has no real immediate payoff, that just magnifies the kind of problems that technology is in part created as opposed to helping alleviate them. You know, and, and I'm a utopian thinker, but like Buckminster Fuller said, you know, it's a utopia or oblivion. So I think we're about running out of time. You guys want to do some free software Friday? Did I lose everybody? <laughs> Okay, let's do it. Sorry, I was on pause or on mute. <laughs> yes. Uh, so you gave up on everybody now. Before the show, it's just Carlicia. Now you're just like, I'm done. I'm out. I was muting everybody. No, I had to cough. I've got it's, it's allergy season here in Florida. You, your family's got to be having the same problem. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The pollen. It's just insane. terrible. It's like raining green pollen. And so uh, for anybody who's new to the show, uh, every week we'd like to uh, give a shout out to open source authors or projects uh, that have been making our lives easier uh, just because oftentimes they only hear from us when we want more stuff from them. So Carlisa, you want to start this week off? Yes, I don't have a software or an app per se, but I do want to give a shout out to Francisc Campoy. He is the most enthusiastic gopher that I know of, and he has this just for funk YouTube channel. And this is actually what I want to give a shout out to because every so often he puts up short videos and they really well done. And they, they, he just, he's be coding something and he'll record it. So if you, if you don't know about it, you should check it out. I love his YouTube channel. Those are so awesome. I love those shows. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Oh, I agree. All right. I'll go next. This is, this is a little one. It's a uh, project I found on GitHub when I got tired of trying to figure out how to exclude my vendor directory from running Go commands. And it's a tiny little project called a G dot dot. So that's the, the letter G with two periods behind it. And it's from somebody whose GitHub username is M-I-B-K. So it's github.com slash M-I-B-K slash G dot dot. And it's just a wrapper for the Go command that excludes your vendor directory. So you can run go test or g dot dot test instead of go test, and you don't have to worry about uh, the Go program descending into your vendor directory and all of that stuff. So it's a, a cute little wrapper, handy tool, and very useful. Awesome. How about you, Ron? Did you have a project you wanted to shout out to? I have a lot of projects I love, but uh, lately I've been really feeling the love for Nats, the uh, messaging system. They have a uh, Bunch of great open source software projects, uh, clients and servers written in Go on GitHub. Also have a really great community that's been adding integrations between GoBot and Nats. And I've seen them participating in lots and lots of events and doing lots of the great things for the community in addition to the code. So, you know, big, big kudos to them. Yeah, we'll second that. Every time I turn around, there's somebody from the Nats community helping out somewhere. 
fact, I think maybe it was last week or the week before we shouted out Nats on Free Software Friday too. So yeah, uh, that's it's it's nice. Nice, great community focused company at AppSera. So mine for this week is uh, by somebody named OJ Reeves. Uh, I'm going to continue my trend with uh, security tools. So it's called GoBuster. It's on github.com slash OJ slash GoBuster. It's like a replacement for Derby or Derbuster, basically to brute force like enumerate directories for websites. So basically you can give it a word list and it tries to find, you know, CGI bin or cPanel or things like that. So that's a super cool tool for uh, scanning web servers. Extremely fun to see what you find too. With permission, of course. With permission. <laughs> Consult your lawyer before hacking any websites, please. Get your get-out-of-jail-free contract first. All right. So with that, I guess this is a wrap. If anybody wants to uh, meet and play with fun GoBot stuff, definitely go to um, the community day at GopherCon. There's always a big GoBot room. Ron brings tons of stuff. I don't even want to know how he gets through the airport with all of it. Uh, <laughs> I just, just turn on all the drones at once and they fly me there. <laughs> I put too many chargers in my bag and that, you know, TSA has it open. <laughs> it's just I have a collection of TSA notices. And uh, actually, I was thinking about putting into each of my flight cases a small transparent envelope where I would put all the notices and then put a little sign that said, TSA, <laughs> please place notices here. <laughs> That's brilliant. Uh, well, Ron, you've been uh, a big supporter of our community day at GopherCon since the first year, and uh, that's when I met you for the first time. So it's it's been a real pleasure knowing you all these years, and we really appreciate the fun and excitement you bring to community day. I think um, it may be the thing that people look forward to more than anything else out of GopherCon, which is sad for us, but good for you, and uh, well, we, we really appreciate well, it. Well, well, thanks. It's truly a labor of love. I mean, the excitement is it comes from the people. You know, I'm just one of the people in the room getting to, you know, draw off of that same energy and learn and see fun things that people do and get creative ideas. And I look at it as a hardware jam session. It's really fun. And if you got to have some fun or learn something, then, you know, it was a, a great experience. But, yeah, I mean, it's fantastic seeing the people's faces light up at the same time that their LEDs light up. I will be bringing a lot of hardware. If you have hardware, bring it. If you want to do hardware hacking that's not GoBot, bring it. If you just want to hang out and play with toys, come on down. It's mm -hmm. going to be fantastic. JBD was hanging out there uh, last year, too. But yeah, even if you don't have hardware experience, uh, come in. Lots of people are teaching people and playing with stuff and collaborating. And I think you, you did some uh, like sessions or something last time where you were kind of walking through steps. I remember seeing the board in there. Yeah, we had like a self-directed thing if you wanted to do that, or if you just wanted to sort of check out some hardware, like library style, lending lab style. We also had some hardware to give away to people, uh, which we typically do. Um, it's sort of part of my Santa Claus complex that I have. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I can't stress enough how um, beginner-friendly the whole GoBot and and Ron specifically are. You know, I am I am not. A hardware person. I don't understand electronics. I don't understand hardware. And I built a complete controller for my barbecue grill using GoBot. So if I can do it, everybody can do it. Which, by the way, I'm I'm uh, going to show up one of these days for dinner. You should. 
because my grill's so big, I can cook enough for the whole neighborhood. If you're ever in Tampa, give us a call. We'll send you home with some. <laughs> you know, at least to the airport. Uh, you know, a rack of ribs will get you through TSA every time. <laughs> I'm not giving them my ribs. You could forget that. <laughs> yeah, just basically let them rest in the aluminum foil, wrap them in a towel, and that's where you put your notes. <laughs> like TSA, <laughs> you're probably hungry. Here's some ribs. <laughs> Yeah, but then my cases would smell like that, and I would get really hungry, and the ribs would be gone by the time I got to the other end. Just the, just the delightful, smoky scent of Golang-powered barbecue would remain. That's what my house smells like. It'd be kind of hilarious, though. Like If you had like them layered across the top of your suitcase, there's like four or five racks of ribs, and it's like, TSA, take two, leave three, please. <laughs> 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 I don't know if they could handle that kind of test. I mean, who could? You know, it's sort of like the, the cookie test of uh, little kids to see how long their willpower is. I mean, that's not fair. No, that's not right. Not with go-powered barbecue. Yeah, and, I mean, they're in an airport. How good is the food? You show up with some, you know, smoky barbecue. I guess that's the time when you sneak in the other TSA entrance with your, you know, evil drone. <laughs> they're like, they're all eating barbecue. <laughs> no, I'm a... Uh, I'm too much of a white hat for that. It would be much simpler, but uh, we have to go onto the light side of the forest with, uh, with our technology and with our barbecue. All right. All right. Well, thanks again, Ron. Yeah, huge thank you for, for Ron coming on the show. Big thank you to all of our listeners listening live and to everybody who will be listening to this in the future. Uh, definitely share the show with family, friends, coworkers. Uh, check out the cool new changelog.com slash live when we are live broadcasting. If you want to listen, we are at GoTime FM on Twitter. If you want to be on the show, you have suggestions for people to be on the show, github.com slash GoTime FM slash ping. And as always, a massive shout out to our sponsors, Backtrace and the Ultimate Go Training Series for helping make the show possible. And with that, goodbye, everybody. We'll see you next week. Goodbye. Goodbye. Bye, everyone. All right, that wraps up this episode of Go Time. Tune in live on Thursdays at 3 p.m. U.S. Eastern at changelaw.com slash live. Join the community and Slack with us in real time. Head to changelaw.com slash community. Follow us on Twitter. We're at GoTimeFM. Special thanks to our sponsors, Backtrace and Ultimate Go. Also, thanks to Fastly, our bandwidth partner. Head to Fastly.com to learn more. This episode was edited by Jonathan Youngblood, and the theme music for GoTime is produced by Breakmaster Cylinder. We'll see you again next week. Thanks for listening.